I am very grateful to be with you this morning and to be resuming our study of the book of Genesis. We began with the beginning, then we moved into the blessing, and now we're in the last portion of Genesis as we study the belonging, and we're going to be primarily looking at the life of Joseph. So if you'll open your Bibles to Genesis verse 37, we will get started. Genesis is so foundational, and I'm so delighted that we've been able to take three semesters to really dig into it, because if you grasp Genesis, you're going to understand the rest of the Bible. It's really going to all fall into place, because God reveals himself in Genesis and lays foundational truths, as we have seen even from creation, that are not just foundational truths for today, but they're eternal truths about our God. Warren Wearsby said about this portion of scripture, Genesis 37 through 50 is much more than a piece of dramatic literature. For when you penetrate deeper, you discover a story abounding with profound theological implications. The hand of God is evident in every scene, ruling and overruling the decisions people make. And in the end, God builds a hero, saves a family, and creates a nation that brings blessing to the whole world. Behind this story is the heart of the covenant-making God who always keeps his promises. Aren't we grateful? He always keeps his promises. I wish I could say I always have kept every promise I've made. I cannot, but God has, and he does. We're going to see that Joseph is a faithful son among the unfaithful. What we learn from this is it is possible to stand alone. And in fact, we need to learn that. We're blessed this morning that we have a large group of women who come alongside us and we encourage each other as we grow. But you also know as you go out into culture, sometimes you feel very lonely. Sometimes even among believers, other people who profess the name of Christ, you feel very lonely because not everybody takes the word seriously. Not everybody builds their life upon the word of God. They take the portions that fit their life, and then they lean on their own understanding in other areas of life. But when you adhere to the word of God and you seek to obey him in every area of your life, you're not going to be comfortable in this world. And as our culture gets increasingly dark, we're going to be increasingly uncomfortable. In fact, we need to teach our children that they're not to fit in. They want to. And, you know, sometimes even as adults, we don't ever outgrow peer pressure, do we? (laughs) There is that pressure to conform, and yet we need to teach our children to stand alone, to be able to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. And the only way we can do that is by knowing who we are in Christ and by knowing and experiencing him personally. So that's what we're going to see in the life of Joseph. He walked with God. He was not perfect, but he was faithful. And he was faithful even among his unfaithful brothers. He did what was right. He chose to be obedient to God. You know, Romans 12, 2 tells us, don't be conformed or pressed into the mold of this world. And we feel that pressure all the time. And our teenagers, our children especially, feel that pressure to conform, to fit in, to look like, talk like everybody else. But we're not going to because we're not of the world. We have citizenship in heaven We belong to another kingdom, and we are simply passing through. So we want to be found faithful, just like Joseph, as we complete the sojourn that God has given us, as we run the race that he has laid out 
before us. And so how do we do that? How do we not be conformed? By being transformed. The renewing of our mind is what transforms us. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind that we might prove, discern, know what the will of God is. And remember, it is what? Good, acceptable, and perfect. So we want to know God's will. Let's look at Genesis 37, verses 1 and 2. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. But we see very quickly it moves into the story of Joseph. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth. Along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, those were Jacob's concubines, his father's wives, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now we're going to see because... Uh, Jacob is going to send Joseph to find his brothers just a little further along in our scripture passage that he reported to his father. So evidently, those unfaithful brothers were not to be trusted, right? <laughs> Jacob felt like not only was, was Joseph favored, but Jacob trusted Joseph to come back and tell him the truth. Now, we look at it and kind of think, okay, was he a tattletale? I mean, was he brown-nosing his dad because he was already the favorite? And so he was like the teacher's pet, you know, in the classroom that nobody else really likes because the teacher dotes on them, and they always tell on everybody else. Well, that's kind of what it looks like Joseph is doing here. He comes back with a bad report, but it's a true report, but he's coming back tattling on his brothers. Now, what does this do for his relationship with his brothers? It just increases the hostility, right? It just widens the gap, and they become more angry and bitter, and in fact, it actually moves to hatred. Look at verses 3 and 4. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. You know, you would have thought Jacob would have learned that favoritism was not a good thing. He had experienced it himself, had he not? He was his mother's favorite while Esau was the father's favorite. It had caused great dysfunction in their family. In fact, he ended up having to flee after he stole the birthright from his brother. Never again saw his mother. Was away for 20 years. All kinds of dysfunction in that family. And yet he's doing it again. He's showing favoritism to Joseph. And yet he realized what that did to his family of origin. Why do we do this? Well, I think it was in the study of Colossians that I said, your dysfunction is worse than, worse than my dysfunction because my dysfunction is my normal. What am I saying? All of us are dysfunctional, right? All of us have grown up in dysfunctional families. The issue is my dysfunction is my normal because that's how I was raised. It's all that I know. Just like Jacob, favoritism, what? From Abraham, <laughs> Isaac, Jacob. There's favoritism all through that generational line. And they just continue it. And we see that from generation to generation, it gets worse and the consequences are more severe. And we see that here. So that's why we all need to be open to any blind spots we may have. Lord, what is my dysfunction that I'm unaware of? Because I don't want to continue to perpetuate that and pass it on to the next generation. And we don't have to. Because in Christ, what did we say earlier? We were once prisoners, but now we've been set free. Christ is able to open our eyes through his word to see where we have fallen into habits of sin, where our family, what the Bible calls sins of the fathers. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Now, Joseph was given an ornamented robe is literally what it means. Most commentators believe it was probably a longer robe with long sleeves, 
possibly multicolored. What it probably means is it was embroidered with a lot of colors, and it would have signified he was the firstborn. Now, he was not the firstborn, right? But Reuben had forfeited his right as firstborn by sleeping with one of Jacob's concubines, Bilhah. It's recorded for us in Genesis 35. And because he had lost that position, instead of going to the next of Leah's sons, Jacob went to Rachel's firstborn son, Joseph, and gave him the right of firstborn. So not only is he the favorite, but now he has the rights, the double blessing of the firstborn, and their hatred and animosity continued to grow. Now, what did Jesus say about hatred? Well, in Matthew 5, 21 through 24, listen to what he said. He said, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave, <clears throat> leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now, what is he saying here? Murder is what? It's made of hatred. It goes back to hatred and animosity that eventually, if left unchecked, turns into murder. It's the stuff that murder is made of. And what does he tell us? If you're coming to church, you're bringing your offering, you're lifting your worship up to the Lord, and there you remember that someone has something against you, not that you have something against them. But a brother or sister has something against you, what are we to do? We're to go immediately to that person and try to make things right. Why? Because God has called us to what? To love. It is love that unifies us. It is love that draws us to Christ. It was his great love for us that first drew him to him. We love because he first loved us. The greatest command is to love him with our entire being. And if I am focusing on loving him with my entire being, his love is going to fill me and flow through me to my fellow man, to my neighbor. And because I've been forgiven much, I'm also going to be able to forgive freely. So if I remember, if I know somebody has something against me, my desire is to go to them and make things right, to apologize, to do whatever I need to do to make things right so that there can be unity, restoration. Now, obviously, that's not always possible because the other person has to be willing as well. But as far as it depends upon me, I want to be able to live at peace with all people. And so when we get into the New Testament, what do we see? Jesus goes beyond the law to explain to us what's behind the law. Why did God give us that law? Because it's the hatred, the animosity, the separation that this brings that ultimately leads to murder that dwells in all of us because we have a sin nature. And that's why we have to be so careful. So then not only is Joseph the favorite, the tattletale, the one with the beautiful robe, but then God gives him a couple of dreams, right? Right? Let's go, let's pick, pick back up in verse five. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? 
Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I've had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, he did rebuke him, but you have to wonder if the moment he heard that dream, he didn't think about the fact that, whoa, wait a minute. God spoke to me in a dream once. In fact, it's recorded for us in Genesis 28, 12 through 16. Just listen to this. Jacob had laid down. He had just left his family. He was headed to, the, to Laban, to the relatives of his mother, to find a wife. And it says, he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. So Jacob had had a dream. And what's one of the things God told him? He reaffirmed the promise he'd given to Abraham about his descendants. But he also said, this land that you're, you're sleeping on right now, you're going to be away for a while, but I'm bringing you back. And what had God done? He had done exactly that. He had brought him back, and Jacob was actually dwelling in the land of Canaan with his family. So he had to have thought about that and wondered. I believe that's why the scripture says, but he held these words close. He pondered them in his heart. Then we move into verse 12 and we see the plot against Joseph. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Now, what do we know about Shechem? That's where Dinah was violated and then Simeon and Levi killed all the men of Shechem. So I have to wonder if maybe that's why Jacob was not a little concerned about the brothers and his flocks because they're back in the area of Shechem. Is there still animosity there? We don't really know. He did purchase some land there. Did he still own that land? Were they pasturing the flock on that land? The Bible doesn't give us any more information on this, but we know that's the area in which they were taking their flocks. And so he says to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring back word to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Now a man just happened to find him there. Come on, guys. You know what it was like back then. He's literally out in the country. He's traveled for miles. He gets to Shechem. He's wandering around looking for his brothers. And a man just happens to find him who just happened to hear his brothers say that they were going to Dothan. Do you see the sovereign hand of God in every aspect of this? 
Yes, he says, a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they're pasturing the flock. Then the man said, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now we're going to see this hostility, this animosity has been building. Don't you know they probably sat around the fire at night and talked about Joseph, talked about this favorite, this pampered favorite son. And then all of a sudden they look up and what do they recognize? The coat. (laughs) The coat is coming. Look at verse 18. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. We see a mob mentality. This anger has been seething. They've all been talking about it. And now, okay, we're coming up with some way to deal with this. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that's in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to their father. Now he had fallen out of grace with his father, right? So Joseph, the favored one, the now firstborn, he was going to protect him. Maybe I can earn my, the, my, love, my father's love again. Maybe I can get back in good graces. Even though I can't be the firstborn again, I, he's protecting not just Joseph, I think his relationship with his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. They threw him in a pit that was empty with no water in a desert, and then they sat down to eat a meal. Can you even imagine the callousness of their hearts? And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead. Now, who are the Ishmaelites? Descendants of who? Ishmael, right. The son of Hagar that was born when they got a little anxious because they had to wait on God. And Sarah concocted a plan, which was perfectly normal in their culture. It's what their culture did. If the wife was unable to have a child, she would take her handmaid and give her handmaid to her husband as a concubine, and the child that was born became her child because that concubine was her property. And yet we know there's animosity between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. He says, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. (laughs) How kind of him. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by. So they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Now you see they use Midianites and Ishmaelites almost interchangeably. Who were the Midianites? Midian was a descendant of a son of Keturah, who was Abraham's second wife after Sarah's death. So you've got these descendants of Abraham that are not of Sarah that are going to be fighting against the descendants of Isaac for generations to come. Then the Midianite traders passed by. They pulled him up. They lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. 
Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? He still bore the responsibility. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this, please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Now, what has he just done? He's relied on his own reasoning. He is reasoning in the natural and he is assuming by what he's seeing that this is what has happened. But we need to remember things are not always as they seem. And God had spoken and given a promise. And Jacob, of all people, knew God fulfills his promises. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Now, what do we see happening here? God is sovereign in all of this. God allows the man to see Joseph at Shechem, directs him to Dothan. They see him coming. They concoct a scheme. God does not allow them to murder him. And I know the Lord allowed Judah even to see the traitors. The traitors just happened to come by while they're sitting there plotting against him. God orchestrated all of this because where did Joseph need to be? In Egypt. Because that would fulfill what God had told Abraham in Genesis 15, that his descendants would be in Egypt for 400 years, but that God would raise up a deliverer who would bring them back once they had multiplied to the point that they could actually possess the promised land and they would take possession. So God was orchestrating it, working even in the midst of their sin. God was going to bring about good. So God was moving even in the midst of that. I want you to look at Joseph and understand that in the Old Testament, we've talked about this several times, there are physical pictures in the Old Testament of spiritual truths. And there are types of Christ in the Old Testament. People that are a type of Christ, that are a deliverer, someone that God sets up as a leader that we see all throughout the Old Testament. And Joseph is one of those people. Joseph is one of the rare individuals in Scripture that we have nothing negative recorded about. Highly unusual because the Bible's very open and honest about the people that are recorded in the pages of Scripture. There's, he was not perfect, as I said, but he was faithful. Warren Wearsby said about him, Joseph is like Jesus in that he was beloved by his father and obedient to his will, hated and rejected by his own brethren, and sold as a slave, falsely accused and unjustly punished finally elevated from the place of suffering to a powerful throne, thus saving his people from death. The major difference, of course, is that Joseph was only reported to be dead, while Jesus Christ did give his life on the cross and was raised from the dead in order to save us. Now, on your handout, you have a comparison of Joseph and Jesus. And we're not going to go through all of those passages of Scripture, but I want us to just walk down through the similarities between the two. Both of them were hated. Both betrayed. Both stripped. Joseph stripped of his outer coat. Jesus stripped of his robe. And his robe, the Roman soldiers actually bartered for, threw lots for. They were both sold. They were both arrested. Joseph was assumed dead while Jesus actually did die. Both were imprisoned. 
Both were put in exalted positions. And if you think about it, Jesus is where? At the right hand of the Father. Where does Joseph end up? Second in command to Potiphar, the most powerful man in the known world. Joseph fed the world. What did Jesus say? I am the bread of life. I am the bread come down from heaven. And then Joseph would feed and clothe his brothers. What does Jesus do for us? He feeds us. He clothes us with his righteousness. You see the similarities. We see that Joseph was faithful. How was he able to stay faithful? God had revealed himself to him. And he had given him two dreams. And this is going to be significant when he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh because God's going to give Pharaoh two dreams. And what does Joseph tell him? God is confirming that it will be so by repeating the dream, by giving you the second dream. So God was speaking to him through those dreams, knowing he was going to need that promise for what was to come. Now, I want us to think about our day of transformation as each week we work through our Bible study. Day five is a transformational truth. This week's truth is a hard one. What is this week's truth? At times, God allows the hard thing so that he can bring about the better thing. Now, think with me for just a moment about Joseph. He's the favored son. He's pampered. A lot of times, he's with the father, right? He's got the beautiful multicolored coat, and he's kind of the tattletale. There's animosity between him and the brothers. Is he ready for a prestigious position of power? No. No. In fact, Christine Kane, at one of the Passion Conferences several years ago, said something I've never forgotten. She said, until the light of Jesus within you is brighter than the spotlight, the spotlight will kill you. Now, we've seen that quite often, especially with celebrities who get catapulted into positions of power and prestige that their character is not able to withstand, and they self-destruct. So God is preparing Joseph's character and he's taking this pampered, favored son, and he's going to allow him to be enslaved to Potiphar, falsely accused, cast into prison before he's put in a position of power so that he would not have any doubt that God was the one who put him there. You don't go from prison to second in command if God's not orchestrating it. But what does this tell us? No matter how bad or dark our circumstances are, no matter how deep the pit. What did Dana say that Corey Ten Boom said? Jesus is deeper still. He is deeper still. He is greater. He is able to move and work, and he can take us out of a pit and put us in a place of prestige or honor or influence. He can do anything he desires to do, and those he's preparing for great leadership go through periods of trial. It's preparation. It's gap time, like we see in the life of Abraham. God gave him a promise. It's 25 years before that promise is fulfilled. And we see that God's working on him the whole time to prepare him to be the father of Isaac, who would be the next of the patriarchs, who would then become the father of Jacob. We see that they went through difficult times. Look at Jacob himself, all that he went through with Laban, how he was deceived, the struggle he had with God all night long. I believe with the pre-incarnate Christ, and God touched his hip socket and was dislocated and he limped for the rest of his life. Why? Because he had met God. 
and he found that in his weakness, God is strong. It is only as we come to the end of ourselves that we're really able to fully and completely trust the Lord. It is in our weakness that his strength is made manifest. So God allowed those difficulties to strengthen Joseph's character. I've read a book in the last couple of years, and the title of it is The Coddling of the American Mind. It's a secular book. It's written by a college professor and a lawyer. But they have examined culture, and what they're seeing is college students are coming into college much less prepared emotionally and mentally than in previous years. And in fact, they estimate that the average 18-year-old has the emotional intelligence and maturity of a 15-year-old. And it is because we have over-parented and protected them. We have stepped in and tried to remove the consequences to their poor choices because what? We love them. And I get it. I, I totally get it. And for your children, you want to protect them. You don't want them to hurt. You want for them to have things maybe you didn't have. You want life to be easy for them. But that's not good for us. In fact, it ends up crippling all of us because we know just like muscles have to be worked, have to be broken down to be built back up, we need stress and tension at times in our life, trials and difficulties, because they strengthen our faith. They enable us to trust the Lord and not to lean on our own understanding and our own gifts and abilities. They submit three what they call untruths of Scripture. And the first one is the one that we're looking at this week in our study. In fact, the way they word it is, they call it the untruth of fragility. The untruth is what doesn't kill you will make you weaker when we know the difficulties, the trials actually make us stronger. That God allows these to strengthen us and prepare us for what? For greater usefulness in his kingdom. To be able to handle a greater opportunity, power, whatever it may be. We're not prepared for that in and of ourselves because our sin nature is weak. Our sin nature turns us in on self. But when we've come to the end of self, what do we do? We look up and we look out. And then we're vessels fit for use in the kingdom of God. It was Evelyn Christensen who wrote in her book, Gaining Through Losing. She made a statement to someone who had been through great difficulties, but it was obvious God was working in their life. And she said to this person, God must have great things planned for you to have allowed you this much fire. What does the fire do? It purifies. It melts down and it brings the impurities to the surface. When we're squeezed, when we're in difficulties, we find out what's really on the inside, right? Who we're really relying on. Am I relying on myself or am I really trusting and depending upon God? One of the quotes from this book is, prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. So what is it we try to do? And I think about my grandchildren. Okay, like this week I was with them and uh, Hadley and Dempsey are 10 and 8, and they have responsibility of cleaning up the kitchen after meals. And so they load the dishwasher and wipe everything off. Well, what did my mom and I do? We stepped right in, and we did all the dishes, and we loaded the dishwasher, and we deep cleaned the house, and I picked up their dirty clothes that they left in the bathroom and the puddles of water when they stepped out because they forgot their towel. And, you know, it's like, guys, come on. <laughs> but that's kids, right? What am I doing when I step in and do that? I'm actually not helping them, Right. 
But it's that natural desire to want to do it for them, to want to bless them, to want to care for them in that way. And yet I'm so grateful that their mother is teaching them how to be responsible. In fact, believe it or not, Hadley's been doing their laundry since she was eight. Y'all, I started maybe at 12 teaching them how to sort laundry. I didn't give them their laundry totally until they were like 16. Hadley's doing laundry for the entire family. <laughs> it is amazing to me. She knows how to sort it. She puts a load in, takes it out. I'm, I'm amazed by that. It's not that Allie doesn't do it along with her, but she's training her children to be self-sufficient. There are certain items they can fix for breakfast in the morning, and they go in and get it out if they're not doing you know, everybody, she's not cooking breakfast that morning. With a new baby, she got several things that they can just do on their own, like instant oatmeal and cereal and um, some of the things they can just pop in a microwave and so they can go in there and fix those things. We need to do that. But what do we do? We go down the road, moving the boulders out of the way, the pebbles, sweeping it, filling in the potholes. We don't want them to hurt. But they're not developing muscles, physically or spiritually, mentally, emotionally. That's why the coddling of the American mind has been such a disaster on college campuses because not only are these 18 to 22-year-olds unable to function in a mature manner, they say that even opposing ideas are what? Traumatizing, triggering. I have to have a safe place. Or if somebody's been invited to speak at a college campus and it's an idea like a Christian vantage point and that would be harmful to them, they're going to protest and ask the administration to cancel the invitation because literal thoughts are harmful. Ideas are... Guys, that's what education is all about. It's about hearing the various ideas and coming to truth, which I love because this book is a secular book, but they've studied culture and human nature and have realized these truths God has built into the very way he created us and designed us, and they see them even though they don't realize they're contained in Scripture, that God has told us these very things. I love it when secularists see the truth of God in nature, and God said, it's evident if you will just look. If we will just look, we'll see it. And that's exactly what they're seeing. I have to share with you one of the examples that they gave. And this is so interesting to me because I saw it back in 2013 when we started to Rise to Read. We went into, you know, and about that time in the 90s, you know, you started hearing a lot about peanut allergies, nut allergies, all this. And so a lot of schools banned anything with peanut butter, nuts, anything. You can't bring it in because kids have allergies. And they're legitimate allergies and they can be serious reactions. So I'm not belittling that. But what they found was, well, let me tell you this. We went to Treble Elementary in the inner city, and we were going to take snacks. And some of you probably remember bringing snacks because we brought snacks for the children who didn't have them and for some of them who came into even their coaching time hungry, even though they get breakfast and lunch at school because they're Title I schools, the kids still come in hungry. And so we wanted extra snacks for them to have to be able to eat while they're there or take back to the room. So I went to the principal and said, is there anything we need to limit? Like, do, are there peanut allergies or anything we need to say, hey, don't bring this? She goes, oh, no, we don't have any allergies. <laughs> 710 children, not one peanut allergy. You know who has peanut allergies? The middle and upper class. <laughs> Why? It's not all their fault. In the 90s, 
because people noticed peanut allergies. Pediatricians started telling parents, wait until later to introduce these foods. And because they waited until later, the children did not build up an immunity to them, and so they would have an allergic reaction the first time they had it. And we noticed they're red around their mouth or something you know, that caused a little rash or whatever, and what do we do? We overreact and we go, oh, they're allergic to peanuts. Get the peanuts out of the house, right? And what does that do? It increases the allergy. And what they found was they went from 3% of the population of the children having peanut allergies to 17 to 20%. Guys, just in the 90s, just in the 90s. Because what were we trying to do? We were trying to protect them, right? Okay, now listen to this. <laughs> listen to this. This is um, a developmental psychologist, Allison Gopnik, explains the hypothesis succinctly and does us the favor of linking it to our mission in this book. She says, thanks to hygiene, antibiotics, and too little outdoor play, children don't get exposed to microbes as they once did. This may lead them to develop immune systems that overreact to substances that aren't actually threatening, causing allergies. In the same way, by shielding children from every possible risk, we may lead them to react with exaggerated fear to situations that aren't risky at all and isolate them from the adult skills that they will one day have to master. Wow. So what do pediatricians do now? They say introduce peanut butter when they're four to six months old in little portions three times a week. So what does that do? The body builds up an immune response that they can tolerate this so that once they had the PB&J, I mean, when I took Allie, I just remember her specifically. I used always did a Mother's Day Out program on Friday because that was Steve's day off. And so I found a mother, our church actually in Alabama had a Mother's Day Out. Allie was two at the time. And if they uh, could eat a PB&J, you could bring them to Mother's Day Out. <laughs> She had a PB&J, but I think, what if she couldn't have had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? You know, it, we gave them peanut butter, peanut butter crackers. I mean, you think about the things that you give your children, and yet sometimes we overreact, and what's the motive? We're trying to protect, but what are we actually doing? We're harming them. We have all been impacted by this untruth of our culture, and they said, actually, we're anti-fragile. We're much more resilient than we realize. And it doesn't mean that trauma and great harm does not need to be dealt with through counseling and gentle care. But most of us have not been traumatized. Most of us are just hypersensitive and focused on self. When we die to our flesh and we live for Christ alone, that's when we're able to love like he loves. That's when we're able to weather the storms of life and the fire that God sometimes allows us to go through. Because what is he doing? He's purging us. He's purifying us. John 15, when Jesus was talking about it, he said, God is the, the master gardener. And what does he do? He comes in and prunes us. Why? So that we can be more fruitful. He harms us to help us. So we need to be able to do the same for those around us. And for those of you who are moms in this room and grandmothers, <laughs> we need to take a step back and we need to let them learn from their mistakes. I was talking to my daughter about this and just discipline, you know, and she said it's so hard sometimes when they disobey to not take it personally and when they overreact to overreact right with them. Um, but to instead say, you know what, 
this is the choice that you made and here are the consequences that you were already aware of and so now those consequences are in place. Because when they become adults, if they don't show up for work or they don't do a good job, guess what? They're going to lose their job. <laughs> we need to develop a strong work ethic. We need to, them to be tough and resilient. And we do that by stepping back and allowing them to deal with the consequences of their own actions and choices and not trying to make everything easy for them. And it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. But God the Father does it for us. God the Father did it for Joseph. God the Father saw the animosity, the hatred that would turn to desire for murder in the hearts of his brothers, and yet he still had Jacob tell Joseph, and he was being obedient to his father, go check on your brothers, check on the welfare of your brothers and the flock. Allow the man to be there, allows him to come, allows him to put him in the pit and sell them to the uh, Midianites. Why? To get him to Egypt. Because God, even there, was going to grant him tremendous favor in the house of Potiphar, tremendous favor even when he was in prison so that he could put him in a position to preserve life. And it's life ordained by God because he was protecting the lineage through whom he would send the promised one. We now live on this side of the cross. We live for the kingdom that is not of this world. So we have to be willing to be uncomfortable, to not fit in, to stand alone, to recognize the schemes of the enemy, that we live in hostile territory and we have a very real adversary and he is a liar. That's why we cannot depend on our own understanding. That's why we cannot lean on our own reasoning. But instead, we go to the word of God. And we ask him to reveal himself to us so that we know him as he is. And when we see him as he has revealed himself to us in scripture, we know that he is faithful. He is the only one who is true and righteous and holy and good. And he is a covenant-keeping God. And if you're in Christ, <laughs> you're part of the new covenant. And he has promised he's coming for us. And just as God did not forget Joseph, he has not forgotten you. Whatever your circumstance is right now, however difficult it may be, whatever your situation, can you, instead of pulling away from it, running away from it, can we press into Jesus and say, Lord, speak to me in the midst of this trial. Speak to me in the midst of this difficulty. Lord, let me hear your voice and let me see your face. And Father, help me to be faithful. Be faithful to you just like Joseph was. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. And he is more than able if we will surrender. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are so good. And God, we thank you that your truth pierces, pierces us. It exposes the lie. The lie of our culture that all of us have been sucked into. Lord, we've, we've taken it in and not even realized that it's a part of the air we breathe. And Lord, I think it's seeped itself in through the prosperity gospel. You didn't promise us that we were going to not have any troubles. In fact, you said in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. And so, Father, you grant us through the power of your Holy Spirit the strength 
to be overcomers as well. So I'm asking for everyone in this room that the enemy's been lying to, that the enemy's been telling her situation is beyond God. Her situation is too dire. She's been hearing words of hopelessness and sensing a heaviness. I'm asking today, Lord, that she would break free, that she would know the truth of who you are, and it is that truth that we know experientially that sets us free. No longer a beggar, but royalty. No longer a prisoner, but running free. That is who we are. And it doesn't mean the circumstance is not painful, but it does mean we surrender to you in the midst of it and we watch you bring good out of what the enemy meant for evil. So, Father, I'm asking you to do it and to do it for your namesake. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.